Thank you, buddy. Thanks, man. Well, good morning. I am so excited to be with you this morning. Um, I love this church because I love your senior pastor, Eric, and the privilege we have had of working together with Greater Europe Mission. I have also gotten to know a number of you in this church who have been involved in GEM, as we call Greater Europe Mission. And this morning, on behalf of the ministry of Greater Europe Mission, I want to say thank you, Calvary Santa Anna, for your commitment to the global cause of Christ in general, which is what this Sunday is about, and Greater Europe Mission in particular. Uh, indicative of that is, as Eric mentioned, I've been the chairman of the board for a long time, about 15 years, been on the board longer. Next year, my term expires, and your very own Eric will become the chairman of the board of the International Board of Greater Europe Mission. Way to go, brother. And John Burns, our president, who's a Brit, is just thrilled that Eric is stepping into this role so Eric can undo the damage I have done. And there's a fair amount, Eric, but you know all that because we've talked about that. Do you know what the greatest injustice in the state of California is? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not go there. Do you know what the greatest injustice in uh, Chicagoland, where Rhonda and I live, is? The greatest injustice in America, the greatest injustice in Europe, the greatest injustice in the world, it's that people are going to hell. Do you want to work for justice? Do you want justice? Then give yourself. Surrender yourself to alleviating eternal suffering through evangelism and discipleship. Uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, in, in little ways, medium-sized ways, big ways. But this morning, I want to take a couple minutes uh, before I get into my message to wrestle with this question, why Europe? Why should we, as churches in America, care so very much about Europe? And the simple answer, and Eric got at this just a second ago, and some of you may not realize this, Europe is the least reached continent in the world in terms of the percent of believers per total population. It's not Asia, it's not Africa, it's Europe. In a number of countries, there's about 50 countries in Europe, and a number of uh, countries in Europe, the percent of believers, say North Macedonia, uh, Kosovo, hear me, 0.2%. One of our uh, GEM missionaries has a dream that will probably become reality over the next couple years to start a Christian camp in the country of Kosovo. It will be the only Christian camp 
in the entirety of the country. Now, this is counterintuitive, right? We ask ourselves a question, no, wait, how can this be, Europe? Well, let me attempt to answer that fairly quickly. Think about it. For the last 1,700 years, Europe has known a version of Christianity that wasn't Christianity. Catholicism. And then in the East, a couple hundred years later, another version of Christianity that has proven not to be Christianity, Orthodoxy. Then roughly 300, 350 years ago, uh, Europe became the center for the Enlightenment and its atheistic rationalism, producing such notables as John Locke and economics, so later Karl Marx, psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, atheists, Science, and specifically evolution, Charles Darwin. And then more recently, by more recently, I mean in the last 110 years or so, Eurus has been the home to two world wars. And so these cathedrals in Europe that we all have seen, that are beautiful on the outside but hollow on the inside, are metaphors for the soul of Europe the spiritual state of Europe. And yet Europe, is, as a continent, is so very critical. It's critical in the sense that it's important. Of Paris, the world center for fashion, entertainment, in many ways, different aspects of culture. England, higher education, the most prestigious universities in the world. Germany, manufacturing automobiles, on and on. Yet Europe is also critical in the sense that Europe is in crisis. Your condition is critical. There's a war right now. Will that expand? Will it become greater? Will it go nuclear? Uh, Europe's economy is facing all sorts of difficulties. When Eric and I were in Germany together uh, near the end of the summer, there's a lot of talk about will there be enough heat for Europeans during this coming winter? And then as uh, Eric also mentioned, you've got this geopolitical crisis that has been precipitated by immigration and all that's involved in that. And all this to say, Europe has a population that's more than double that of the United States. And we can't merely, as followers of Christ, go to Europe for vacation. Instead, we must call down thunder and give ourselves to seeing this least-reached continent come alive again for Jesus Christ. And so having said that, this morning what I want to do is I want to talk about the how. Uh, Really sort of the how and why. How how do we get there? And more broadly, what I'm really doing is asking the question, how can you and I uh, live lives of evangelism and and, and discipleship in our our neighborhoods, in our, our workplaces, among our family, extended family? 
And the answer is Jesus. And what I mean more specifically is being alive in Jesus. Being alive in the mercy, the unstoppable, bottomless, shoreless mercy of our Savior. You see, I happen to believe that the Bible teaches that the way we live to the glory of God, which is what we've been singing about, <clears throat> the way we obey the mandates of God is by basking in the mercy of God. As a toddler thrives in the love of a parent. So I submit to you that uh, the key uh, to evangelism and discipleship, wherever, whatever we do, the key to the Christian life isn't focusing, and we tend to do this way too much, isn't focusing on merely what we must do as followers of Christ, but focusing on what God has done for us already in Jesus, what Jesus has already done for you. And by the way, this is the central invitation of the Bible. So Hebrews says, chapter 3, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Chapter 12, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And what is chapter 11? How we do that by faith. All sorts of historical examples. Central invitation of the Bible. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But honestly, it's taken me years to get here. You see, for a long time, my preaching tend to focus on do's. Do this, do that. Because I'm a doer. I do, do, do. Rhonda, my wife, says I'm an energizer bunny on steroids. That's not a compliment, by the way. And I, I, I just do. And then... My first wife, Carol, got diagnosed with cancer, a brutal, aggressive cancer. And 11 months later, she died. And she was, we were 50, married for 27 years. To compound that, I was in the busiest vocational period of my life, ministry-wise, because I was leading our church in a massive relocation outside of Wheaton, Illinois, to an adjacent community where we would have much more property. And the vocational stress was up here. Yet suddenly I found myself the single-parent father of four children. And the youngest was 12. And I, I tell you this because I couldn't do anymore. The only thing I could do was cast myself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And slowly in the midst of the pain and the loss and the uh, 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 nights, the sleepless nights, and the, the stress and the mess, and attending to four children that were grieving each in different ways in their own ways. 
I began to shift. I began to pivot from focusing merely on my loss, merely on the pain, merely on the circumstances, to the wonder of our precious Savior, to His goodness. That in His sovereignty, He had given me an assignment. He had given our family an assignment, a difficult assignment, and my responsibility was to say, yes, sir, but not to deny the pain for a nanosecond. To thrive in this sovereignty, to thrive in the, the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness when I was uh, so mad at God. And slowly but surely, it was the mercy of God in Jesus Christ that changed my life. As I move from fixing my eyes on myself to Jesus, and I discovered on the, along the way that this is the how, this is the why, this is the bottom, this is the underneath of the Great Commission, living a Great Commission life. And yet so often we just do, 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 we just focus on doing, 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 and we miss the fuel that ignites the fire that sustains the mission of the Great Commission. And so I want to speak personally and share with you three questions that I ask myself that I want to invite you to consider asking yourself as well. And so here's the first question. Do I see the mercy of Jesus? This is the question in the moment, in the situation, in the stress, in the happiness, in whatever. Am I seeing the mercy of Jesus? Am I believing it in the moments that make up my life? Now, let me demonstrate this for you. Let me look at a couple passages. The first passage is Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. You know this passage, therefore I urge you, notice urge, there's urgency to this, brothers and sisters, in view, here it is, of God's mercy. Okay, so in light of God's mercy, what, Paul? Well, everything. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual, true and proper worship. Now, Eric and the team are wonderful Bible teachers, so you know that the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are all about doctrine, sin, judgment, redemption, forgiveness, uh, uh, adoption. And yet here when we come to Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, and we're focusing on verse 1, Paul shifts. Paul transitions from doctrine to practice. And what does he do? Notice this. Often we miss this. He uses one word to summarize all the doctrine of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, and it's the word mercy. I love this. It's not judgment. It's not transcendence. It's God's mercy. But there's more here. Because he uses 
one word to describe the fundamental motivation of our Christian lives. I mean, real time, right now, here. I mean, he's talking about how we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, how we live lives of 24-7 worship. And it's the same word. It's the word mercy. Do you see this? How central God's mercy is. I mean, think about what's going on here. Paul moves from precept to practice, uh, telling us that the key to the spiritual life, uh, the key, we're talking about missions and the global cause of Christ, uh, personal evangelism, personal discipleship, mentoring, leading others who who are um, on the same journey is believing in the mercy of God. So maybe we get up in the morning and and we say, who am I to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? What? To be adopted, to to be forgiven. And we start our day with mercy. The steadfast love of the Lord never fails. His mercies never cease. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. And all I'm trying to say here with this first question is that in building and sustaining uh, a Great Commission DNA, we don't start with the divine mandates. We start with the divine mercy of God in Christ. And I wonder, do you see it? Uh, do you believe it in the moments that make up your life? Uh, let me go on to the second question I ask myself. It's the question, do I savor it? Do I savor Jesus' mercy? Do I savor what I see? Do I treasure what I believe? In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul has his second prayer in the book of Ephesians. It happens to be my most favorite prayer in the New Testament. And Paul is praying for these Ephesian believers, and look what he says. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16. And Paul writes this. I'm sorry, I I meant Ephesians chapter 3. I gave the guys in the back the wrong verses. So if you have your Bibles, or I don't know if you guys can put it up real quickly, but let's look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, I pray out of your glorious riches you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner beings. So that, so that what, Paul, what? So that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. And that's what I want to focus on, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. You guys know the word dwell. The uh, word dwell means to take up residence, to move in, to occupy. What's interesting about this word dwell in Ephesians chapter 3, the second prayer of Paul's, is that it's an experiential term. Paul is talking about experiencing Jesus. 
that Jesus would dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, I'm going to take a couple of minutes to tease this out because it's important. So, first of all, we bump into a problem if you stop and think about it because these Ephesians are already believers, and we know as the rest of the New Testament teaches us, the moment we come to Jesus Christ, we are um, not only blessed with every spiritual blessing, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit takes up resonance in us. So, why is Paul praying for something we already possess? Why is Paul praying that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith when Christ already dwells in our hearts by faith from the moment we came to Christ? And the answer is because he's talking about experience. He's talking about the existential reality of you experiencing Jesus Christ in your daily life. Dwelling, as I just said, is an existential, experiential term. We have Rhonda and I between us in our second marriage, and we've been married almost 15 years now. Um, we have seven adult kids. They're all married, 14 grandkids and counting. I, I often say it's too many. But I won't say that now because one of our daughters is here, one of our five daughters. And so when they come to our house, or portions of them come to our house and stay with us for, say, Thanksgiving or Christmas, they are dwelling with us, and it's an experience, quite an experience. And you know what Paul is doing here in Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? He's talking about Jesus Christ. Now, follow me in this, moving from your head to your heart, from merely seeing and believing in Jesus to savoring Jesus, treasuring Jesus. Jonathan Edwards years ago said, there's two different ways to know honey is sweet. One is when somebody tells you it's sweet and you believe it. The other, though, is when you taste it. Do you taste? the mercy of Jesus in these moments of your life? His majesty and his mercy, his transcendence, yet his tenderness, his tenderness, his power, yet his patience. And here's a question I, I, I've been asking myself for years and I love to ask people that gets at this savoring. Is Jesus merely useful to you, or is he beautiful? Now, I say this because I've been in ministry long enough to know a number of Christians up close and personal who believe in Jesus, but Jesus does not, does not dwell in their hearts by faith. Their circumstances do, like work or, or their hobbies or their kids, or their kids' problems, or uh, 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 bad things dwelling in their heart by faith, like greed or, or lust. On Thursday of this week, what is that, just a couple of days ago, a friend of ours who's been a, a teacher and a leader in our church of sorts uh, came over to my house 
He's one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. He's a former professor in the law school at the University of Chicago. He can't talk about what he did for the first 25 years of his vocational life other than to say, when I was a student at Harvard, two men in blue suits came to talk to me. And he sat there in my family room confessing that the entirety of his marriage, during the entirety of his marriage, I mean, this is Thursday. He'd been living a double life. Uh, he believes in Jesus, but Jesus didn't dwell in his heart. His passions did. What dwells in your heart today? As we go into Thanksgiving, as we go into Christmas, what's dwelling in your heart? Is it God joy like Eric writes about in his wonderful book? That was a plug, Eric. <laughs> Is it peace? A, a compassion? Or is it anxiety, anger, restlessness? So, what do we do? Paul, how, how do you help us? How can you help us? Well, look what Paul says next in verse 18. Paul is, uh, is talking here about grasping, that God may give you the power. We need God's power, but he uses the word grasp. Grasp is an action word. It means to lay a hold of, to grab onto, to hold onto. It was used to, uh, as a term for wrestling. Uh, we uh, grasp what? We grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He's talking about the mercy of Jesus. He's talking about the multidimensional nature of Christ's love. How wide? There's no sin that Jesus uh, doesn't forgive. Uh, he talks about how long from eternity past all the way into eternity future. How high, how exalted, how deep, how costly. And that we intentionally and, and regularly uh, give ourselves to thinking through this multidimensional nature of Jesus' love. I want you to know that I pray this prayer several times a week for every single kid in our family, every single one of our grandkids, for Rhonda for other people, that Christ would dwell in our, faith, in our hearts by faith as we grasp the wonder of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to say it again. The key to living the Christian life isn't merely seeing Jesus, it's experiencing Jesus. And so is Jesus useful to you or is he beautiful? Now let me go on. So the question I begin with is, do I see, do I believe in Jesus' mercy in the moment, or is it my circumstances that are dominating? And then, am I savoring? Am I treasuring that? Am I pressing it down into the recesses of my heart by grasping it? And then here's the third question. Do I show it? See it, savor it? Show it. Not original with me, 
but to me, it describes the essence of the spiritual life. So look at another passage. This is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Note God's special possession that you may hear it is declare the praises of him. Called you out of darkness into his light. Now, those first four descriptors all get at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. They smack of God's mercy. I mean, we are God's special uh, possession. But the point here in verse 9 is one of the ways we show uh, God's mercy is that we declare. We've been ordained to declare it, to winsomely but boldly point others to Jesus by our words. So we share our story. We share how God's answered a, a prayer request. We share the difficult thing we're going through and what Jesus means to us. And sometimes we do that in six seconds. Sometimes we do it in 60. Sometimes we do it in an hour. But we're telling the story of God's mercy as we're experiencing it. And it's speaking up. It's living a life of good deeds verbally because you know the greatest injustice in the world is that people are going to hell. But there's more. Let's skip down three verses later. In verse 12, Paul, uh, Peter, I always get Peter and Paul confused, um, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds. So showing it involves our words and showing it involves our lives, our, uh, our deeds. It's our uh, deeds that affirm our words and it's our words that explain our deeds. And then if you go through the rest of First uh, uh, Peter here, Peter begins to explain what some of these deeds are. If you go to chapter uh, verse 13, it's submitting to authorities, not blasting them. In 23, it's perseverance in the face of loneliness and rejection. In chapter 3, in verse 8, it's being loving, compassionate, humble, inside the church and outside the church. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read, we read, why do you complain, O Israel? Why do you assert, O Jacob? My way is hidden from my God. My cause is disregarded by him. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired. His understanding no one can fathom. Such is the majesty of Jesus Christ. Ten chapters later, Isaiah chapter 50, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says, I offered my back to those who beat it, my beard to those who pulled it out. I did not, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, despised and rejected. Such is the mercy 
of Jesus. Do you see the majesty and the mercy? Do you believe it? Do you savor it? Do you show it? You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have this incredible uh, privilege in spite of our feebleness that we are God's chosen people. Peter has just called us God's special possession. We have been ordained, not that we might spend our lives on ourselves, uh, but on others. That they might come to experience the mercy of Jesus. Because what fuels the passion that sustains the commission is being alive in God's mercy. And brothers and sisters, may it continually wash over you. May you turn your eyes on Jesus and look full into his wonderful face. And then, and then the things of earth will grow strangely clear as you live in light of the wonder of his glory and grace. Amen? Will you allow me to pray? Uh, Father, in Exodus 33, Moses prays, Show me your glory. Would you make that prayer, a prayer that some people have said is the most important prayer in the Bible, would you make that the consuming passion of our lives? Would you show us your glory? I pray for my brothers and sisters, the students, the, the children. that we might see your glory revealed as your mercy. Bless this great church. Bless them as they continue to serve you and live for you and press and stretch for you. And I pray in the great and the merciful and the gracious and the compassionate and the majestic and the transcendent name of our bleeding and dying Savior. Amen.